You're listening to The Dice Men Cometh, broadcast live to air on Edge Radio 99.3 FM and proudly sponsored by LFG Australia. The Dice Men Cometh! Hello and welcome to The Dice Men Cometh, Australia and the Southern Hemisphere's leading board game podcast. We are coming live from various bedrooms, bathrooms, games rooms, and all types of rooms around the world, as Leon and I are very lucky to be joined by a couple of special guests this morning and tonight, aren't we, Leon? We certainly are, and it's very good at the moment to have people from all around the world, because we're all dealing with this mayhem of this Armageddon completely differently, but we all still have one thing in common, is that we want to get those board games, card games, tabletop games, role-playing games, anything you can play on a table played. Sometimes, unfortunately, we have to do it digitally of late, but luckily, sometimes we do get a chance to get stuff to the table, like yesterday, or sorry, the day before, when I played uh, Twilight Imperium for 12 hours straight which was much, much fun. And we will be talking about sometime soon once I get Garth to play it as well. Absolutely. But before we talk about a 12-hour game, oh, man, 12 hours, we have some much more exciting stuff to talk about because we are very lucky to be joined by Mark Spector of Grand Gamers Guild coming live from the US of A. Hello, Mark. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, you guys. I've been a listener for a while, and I'm excited to be a guest tonight. There you go. Well, it's our pleasure to have you, and clearly your pleasure to be on the show. We are also joined by Cassie, who is a mod developer for Tabletopia, Tabletop Simulator, and a few other things that we've never really heard about. Cassie, hello. How are you? Hi, I'm really well. Thanks for having me. No, that's great. So, look... um, It's wonderful that we can have four people on the show from three different continents and uh, talk about this love of gaming that we've got. But Mark, I do want to start with you and and Grand Gamers Guild. Can you give us a little bit of a who you are, what you are, and why should people listen? Hang on a tick. Before we jump in there, are we calling mainland Australia another continent now these days, Garth? Absolutely. Okay, cool. Just wanted to clarify that. Fortress Tasmania, the rest of Australia, the rest of the world. No, I just I, I've wanted Tasmania to succeed, succeed for a while, considering that, well, if you look at most maps of Australia, we're not on the bloody thing anyway, so that's fine. I just wanted to make sure that we're announcing it officially, so that's good. We'll be on the news, so that's a bit more publicity for the show. So, yes, sorry, back to my hole. Mark, please go ahead. All right, so uh, Grand Gamers Guild, I am an indie publisher. We uh, began doing business uh, back in the ancient times of 2016 when the gaming landscape and the world landscape were very different places. And um, our first game was on real estate. We popped off another small game after that called Pocket Ops. And then we went bigger with things like the Artemis Project and Endeavor Age of Sale. And, um, and I mean, my whole goal has been to put out a wide smattering of product so that you could spend all night with our games and not realize they're from the same publisher. But, uh, you know, here we are four years in. Uh, Garinto's about to be manufactured. Endangered New Species just finished its Kickstarter. And um, you know, I'm pretty proud of what we've accomplished over the past uh, four years. Yeah, that's a pretty amazing run in a relatively short amount of time. And we'll get to all those games in a little bit. But you know, always a good place to start in these kind of conversations is what turned you into a gamer? When was this critical moment where you decided to put back Monopoly on the table on the shelf and pick up something good? Sure. So um, when I was a kid, I played some basic mass market games with my mom. 
And then, you know, fast forward to about the age of 13, 14, I started playing Dungeons and Dragons with my friends, did that until I went to college and then gaming kind of stopped in my life at that point because I was very studious and attentive and a high achiever. Excellent. Good to hear it. Like we all were. Hey, Leon. We were all high achievers too, aren't we, Leon? Yeah, definitely. Considering our uh, our college in Tasmania was between the ages of 16 and 17. So I was um, drunk for two years, walking around with a, with a camera and an art notebook. And it's got me working as a engineer in a factory because that makes perfect logical sense <laughs> anyway back to somebody that's actually educated continue Mark. so after college i actually happened upon gaming again due to mystery shopping i don't know if you're familiar with what mystery shopping is but essentially i was paid a tiny amount of money to go and assess customer service and one of the places that i did that was in the wizards of the coast stores that existed around the mid 90s and oh, wow yeah, it was really awesome. It was a great job or great, you know, whatever gig. Because I was doing that, I started picking up all the Dungeons and Dragons books and eventually happened upon uh, Settlers of Catan. That was my gateway game. Of course. And then right around 2005, I had been running a D&D game for almost, uh, I don't know, a decade at that point. This guy that I knew professionally comes up to me and he's like, hey, you're a gamer. You really should come to this convention with me called Origins. It's in a couple months in Columbus, Ohio. And um, I went and it was completely a mind blown situation. I had no idea that this world of designer board games existed. Uh, from there, I started volunteering for the convention. I started running events for the convention. I eventually founded a, a convention in my own hometown, yep. which has since, I, I since sold that off to my business partner. And right as I was leaving that, I decided I wanted to be a publisher. So that is, uh, that's like my biography, my gameography in 60 seconds. Yeah, that's not a bad little story that we've got going on there. I always find it pretty amazing what takes someone from being a player to a publisher because that's a, that's a bit of a leap of faith, I reckon. And especially as someone who creates a little podcast every, every little while, that's easy. I can sit down and talk. But actually going, you know what? I've stopped having fun. I want to make this work. Is that, is that something that you go through and you go, yeah, I'm, I'm having too much fun now. Let's, let's monetize this and put some extra pressure on myself? Well, I don't do a lot of things by half measure. And I had been in my primary career, the exciting world of insurance sales for almost two decades. And Woo! I kind of was getting tired of the same thing over and over and over again. I was tired of giving the same speeches. I was tired of having the same rejections. I was tired of trying to sell someone a product that I know they needed that they didn't want to pay for and wanted to fight me tooth and nail every moment of the conversation. When instead, I could sell someone something they wanted because they were excited and it was about fun. You know, I've come to realize that all we really want in this world is entertainment in whatever form we we are entertained. And so now I'm a part of that. I'm a part of, uh, you know, providing that little dopamine hit when you, uh, you know, move the pawn to the right place or play that special card and you just nail all your friends to the wall with a stunning victory. Absolutely. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen very often for me, but I'll, I'll take the occasional <laughs> win now and there. <laughs> so, so why Grand Gamers Guild? What's the origin of that name? Oh, so that is kind of twofold. Uh, first of all, I have lived in Grand Rapids for about 20 years. So that's where um, the Grand comes from in part. The other thing is that in between college and real life, I spent some time in Brussels and they have just a magnificent central city area called the Grand Place. And so, you know, it's this uh, sort of gigantic square, town square that's surrounded by all these amazing sort of like guild houses. 
And I was always fascinated by the fact that, you know, essentially these were secret clubs or, or semi-secret clubs and, you know, all the tools of the trade, all the secrets were, were available to the tradesperson behind those doors. And so early on, I don't really talk about it too much anymore, but one of our, um, one of our little catchphrases was unlock the secrets. So again, I don't really use that too much anymore, but it's a combination of where I live and um, the amazing time I spent in Belgium. So, and that notion of being a part of something and that being special. So essentially you decided to become a game designer and developer because you lived in a Euro game for a while. There you go. There you go. Although don't ever confuse me with an actual designer. Occasionally yeah. I contribute with an insight to the development of a game, but I do not have the grit and stick to that a legit designer <laughs> uh, deserves. So that's all right. We, we call ourselves journalists, even though we're absolutely not. It's just, <laughs> it just sounds more impressive. Just like, you know, where I work, I'm a chocolate chef, which sounds rather sexy. It's just, a, I'm just a guy that presses buttons on the machines and talks uh -huh. on the radio from time to time. <laughs> you know, that's what you do. Excellent. Cassie, what do you want to throw into the mix? Oh, I was just going to say, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Absolutely. I mean, well, that's Mark, Australia's funny, catchphrase, funny basically. <laughs> I lived in Belgium for eight months as well, Mark. So I know exactly where you're talking about. Oh, okay. And uh, it is a glorious little city and there's a lot of good beers to be drunk there. That's There sure. are. Yeah. Took me a long time to finish all the drinks in my local bar. About three months to finish every different type of beer. But we digress. So let's go into the, the gaming story of uh, Grand Gamers Guild. And I said, I will probably get that wrong. But look, for, for me, it looks like you've, you've really started to transition from these, these smaller and I guess you know, cheaper to produce games up to these, these bigger ones that are finding more and more success. I think that's a really nice way to start a publisher. Was that a, a deliberate choice to start small or was that a nature of um, not having all the reserves that you need to make big games? It was both. If I was going to screw up, I wanted to screw up small on a small project. Big projects mean big screw ups and that means bigger money. So I'm very much a believer in um, not letting my, um, what do they say? Not letting my reach exceed my grasp or whichever one, maybe it's said the other way around, but um <laughs> Basically, just the idea is, you know, starting small, learning, getting a system in place. And I don't know that that system is in place yet, but, um, you know, I'm making it happen one project at a time. I'm still a project to project company. Yeah, absolutely. But look, there are these, these littler games. What, what are the games that you sort of started with the first few that really, you know, got you into this publishing game? Sure. So Unreal Estate was the first game we kickstarted, a little uh, push your luck set collection card game. We followed that up with Pocket Ops, which was a... Uh, Variation on tic-tac-toe, which if you can believe it, you know, uh, did really, really well. Um, yeah, oh, I was also, looking at that actually a little while ago and um, it looks cool. I've not played it, but I'm interested. There is a lot more game there than meets the eye is what it comes down to. Um, actually, yeah. in between that, I, um, I also published Stroop, which is a speed cognitive. It's, I tell people it's the thinkiest filler you'll ever play. Um, did that with the Unreal Estate money, trying to get the machine, get the engine rolling. And then after that, you know, we went big. Um, I think the next one after that was our partnership with Burnt Island Games on Endeavor Age of Sail. And then the Artemis Project and Endangered and then Grinto and then Endangered New Species. And, and actually it was uh, Grinto that led to my relationship with Cassie because she uh, has the skills and the talents to implement things online and uh, definitely had a hand in... Um, you know, uh, raising the profile of that game. 
Fantastic. Well, let's talk about Garinto for a little bit because it is, you know, uh, uh, one of your more recent Kickstarter successes that only, only went on to Kickstarter not too long ago. Give us the 30-second the pitch on what a Garinto is and, and why people should play it. Sure. So what a Garinto is in real life is that's actually a, a Japanese memorial statue that represents the five elements. Uh, starting from the bottom up, you have earth and then water and then fire and then air and then void. And the designer, Richard Yainer, um, applied a movement system to those, completely, you know, abstracting, you know, the, the meaning, but for the purposes of the game. Uh, put together a tile movement game that just sings and does things that no other um, tile game does. I mean, we were talking about Azul before we started broadcasting or, or recording, as the case may be. You know, Azul's an amazing game. And I would, you know, this is perhaps a bold claim, but I think Garento is every bit the game that Azul is, but plays completely different. Um, so if you yeah. like tile movement, you like abstracts, you'll probably dig Garinto as well. Yeah, and look, it's fair to say that Garinto did pretty well on Kickstarter. I remember seeing your, your you know, typical day one Facebook post going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And then um, those posts started to get really positive as it funded in a, a pretty short amount of time. Yeah, it was a very different campaign. I'm not really a fan of stretch goals. Um, most, As most experienced gamers and Kickstarters know, most of them are fake. And Garinto, as a game... We knew what we wanted to create and it doesn't, the system is very tight and it doesn't really lend to the idea of stretch goals. And the game really wasn't going to work without plastic tiles. I mean, to yeah. use cardboard or punch board, it really just would have completely undermined. I mean, can you imagine playing Azul with, with punch board and not, and not nice little clacky plastic tiles that we couldn't, <laughs> we couldn't provide that experience. So we just said, this is what we're going to do. We're putting it out there fully finished, please help us see this happen. And, um, and the people really came. It was amazing. I, I was very shocked because not only is it an abstract, not only does it not have stretch goals, but one of the things that probably makes my approach to this publishing thing so challenging is that because I publish a wide swath of product, the Venn diagram overlap of my audience from one project to the next is not the same as many other companies. Like for instance, Simon, you know, they do a lot of different stuff, but man, their minis projects, you're talking to the same people over and over. That's not really the case with me. And so I, I'm not going to change my approach, but it does make my approach a bit more of a struggle than for some other companies. Absolutely. And that's, that's fair enough. Now, Cassie, how did you get involved in this and, and turning the physical version of Garinto, which most of us haven't seen a physical copy yet, into a digital version? Um, it all started with an email. I just needed to change my address. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of emailing the yellow pages, you emailed Mark to try and get that done for you? I, I yeah, don't well, it. it was my delivery address for Endangered. And so we just got talking and it was right at the very start of the pandemic and I was stuck at home, needed something to do. And yeah, he very kindly sent me the files for Garinto to have a play around with. <laughs> Uh, and then we ended up with this really beautiful mod on um, Tabletop Simulator. And I've also done Endangered on Tabletop. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Now, I've not really spoken to many people who've, who've ground down and actually made these, these files and physical, physical games into electronic ones. Like, how long does this kind of stuff take even for, you know, what looks like a relatively simple game, this, this abstract version uh, for Garinto? Is that like days or weeks or hours? How, how long is this project? Uh, that was right when I was starting to learn the program. Uh, the tabletop simulator is actually pretty straightforward. It, it does most of the work for you. You just need to sort of make the file 
look nice and then you just pop it in and then it generates it for you. So you don't need a lot of experience to start off with. Uh, you can eventually learn some coding, which is what I'm starting to learn now to make the mods better. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, like for the most part, it doesn't take super duper long. I did spend a long time on Garinto because I was trying to learn 3D modeling to make the, the actual tiles work. Yeah. Uh, but eventually I just couldn't get it I couldn't get it to go exactly the way I wanted to in Tabletop Simulator. So I just had to do the next best thing and just make you know, tiles, like flat tiles instead of clicky any tiles. Yeah, okay. Which is, I'm, you know, still a bit sad about, but, you know, it's it's a goal for one day <laughs> down the road to improve it again, make it nicer. Fantastic. Now, Mark, do you think that this kind of integration between the physical and the digital is, is a way for, you know, Kickstarter creators, designers, publishers to be able to give, you know, backers the, the glimpse of what the game's going to be like before being able to, to touch and hold it? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to engage the people where they're at. So whether they want a print and play, which with Garinto wasn't really possible, um, or they want um, a, a, a tabletop, uh, tabletopia type platform, or you know, they want to just look at the Kickstarter page and make their decision. Um, yeah, you got you to be there in the way that they want you to be there. And that's just the nature of Kickstarter. The Kickstarter backer today is an extremely savvy consumer, at least the gamer backers. And, um, you know, it's uh, some people click, pledge, and walk away, but there are a lot of folks who really like to dig in and make sure that they, they're genuinely going to like the game itself in addition to making sure all the, all the credentials are there. A, a solid publisher, good reviews, um, a video, you know, have it, just having those things also though lends to your credibility that you're working seriously on a project. Yeah, absolutely. And for those of us on the other side of the world to, to you, Mark, it also shipping's not a small consideration. It's something that, you know, we really have to factor in when we're, we're buying a game in, in Australian dollars that's already, you know, suffering from an exchange rate hit to then have shipping on top of it. it it's something that, you know, our back pockets really do need to consider. Shipping kills me. I, it is the bane of every, uh, I mean, anyone who's moving a product, whether it's from Kickstarter or another platform, it's crazy. Um, I try to be as generous to my supporters as I can in the sense that uh, usually we'll allow, at least this time around in our most recent campaign, we allowed up to eight units with only a single shipping charge. And we just kind of, right. you know, take that additional shipping cost on the chin and, and it kind of comes out in the wash in the balance of yeah. selling more units. And Cassie has been an enthusiastic backer um, and also coordinator of those Australia-based group shipments. So thank you. Oh, isn't that nice, Cassie? Oh, Man himself saying thanks. It's a, it's, a great, it's a great way to do things over here and save money and also get more eyes on the project. So why wouldn't I do that? Excellent. Now I want to talk about the Artemis project, which was actually the first of the, the Grand Gamers Guild games that I played okay. personally. Um, and look, I, I remember we were just at a little convention in, in Canberra, our nation's capital, and it was, we've got some time to kill, don't know much about this game, let, let's pick it up and away we go. And, and geez, we were really pleasantly surprised with the depth of play, the, I guess, the, the dice placement you know, aspect to it, which is a mechanic that's, I still think, underutilised in our hobby. It's such a wonderful way to, to use dice rather than just rolling them and, and away you go. Where, where did you find this game? So the Artemis Project, I actually found the Artemis Project simultaneous to Pocket Ops and Endangered, funny enough, oh, wow. um, at an event called Protospiel, which took place in Chelsea, Michigan, all the way back in 2016. 
So turned out, as somebody pointed out to me, I didn't even realize it myself, that I actually ended up signing and publishing every game that I sat down and played there that day. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Daniel Rocky, who is one of the co-designers of the game, came down to that event and sat down and ran me through a number of games, uh, the last of which I believe was the Artemis Project. And even though it was uh, a diamond in the rough at that point, I it was one of those moments where I just sat at the table and said, I love this. And um yeah you know, took it back, played around with it. Um, and then between me and him, uh, the other designer, Daryl Chow, and the uh, developer and art director, Josh Capel, uh, brought that sucker up to speed to become what you, uh, you know, what you played at that convention. And there is much more Artemis yet to come. To uh, 2021, if I have my druthers, 2021 will be the year of Artemis. Okay, I like the sound of that. But yeah, I mean, again, for, for those listeners who haven't found out what an Artemis project is, you want to give us a little backstory? Oh, sure, not a problem. So the Artemis project was actually a real thing um, where, you know, scientists who are much smarter than me looked into um, the viability of establishing colonies, not only on our moon, but on Europa. So the Artemis part comes from the fact that, you know, the, our moon, Artemis is the goddess of the moon. And then Europa, even though it's uh, pretty far flung from where we are in the solar system, is um, an ice-based planet that has uh, supposedly water below the surface. And the idea is that life could um, have developed independently there. And then, of course, with the icy crust, could be a place where people could settle down, so to speak. So yeah. what's that? Oh, I was just going to say, oh. look, I mean, you, you, you place the, the board and admittedly, it's a really compact board. It, it doesn't take up a huge amount of table space, which is nice, but the board immediately gives you that, um, that view. I mean, I love the fact that you've got the, the underwater aspect to it and that's where the game starts. And then you've got the above and you know, on the other side of the, in the atmosphere, I guess, is, uh, is very evident. And once you get your head around the, the little placements on each of the boards, it, it really just sings. It flows along really nicely. Yeah, I have to give credit to that, that sort of underwater over ice through line in terms of the storytelling to Josh. Um, he, you know, not only sort of created the story of the Artemis Project, but also directed the art. So, you know, Dominic Mayer realized the vision, but, um, but it was Josh's idea to put the scoreboard in the middle to have the two sets of buildings lie next to your your um your player mat in the way that they do so they form that above and below type of thing so yeah we're super proud of the artemis project we do think it uses dice in a unique way and um and we think you know one of the reasons why i liked it so much is because one of my favorite games is power grid and mm -hmm. what i love about power grid is that you are playing the players as much as you are playing the game and i feel like the artemis project while i'm not going to be so highfalutin as to think that uh, artemis measures up to power grid but I would say that th as games go, the tone of that game is really set by the people at the table. You can, I mean, everyone needs everything, right? But you can actively nastily stomp all over each other, or you could play nice until you have to have something. And I feel like that that tone is set by the players, not, um, not by the game. And so you're always watching what people do and have and where they're going next. And so again, it's an experience where you're playing the players as well as playing the game. Absolutely. Now, Leon, I want to ask you a question. Yes. Do you reckon when I was playing the game that mm -hmm. we played the nice everyone get along until we really need to version? Um, I don't think those versions exist when we play games because that's, no. just, that's just not fun. Like I said before in the intro, when I played the 12-hour the game of TI4 the other day, it was 
It was just a bloodbath once everyone figured out the rules. It was just like, okay, how quickly can we destroy everyone? And I was like, that's not how you win the game or necessarily in the spirit. They're just like, oh, I'm going to throw space bugs in your face. <laughs> so needless to say, I came last and very, very last in my version uh, when I played the Artemis Project. But we had such a great time. It was actually the final game of the convention that we played and it was, it was ending on a high. So we were very happy. Thank you very much for bringing that to our tables. That's awesome. I'm happy to have been the, uh, the, the end cap on your experience there. Yeah, it was good. Now, again, we'll go. We'll go to. Um, we'll get to endangered because we'll finish up on on the most recent stuff later on. But but let's go to endeavor. Uh, endeavor was your biggest success. It was massive. You know, when yeah. you when you look at Kickstarter, you know, I, I wrote down here six hundred eighty six thousand dollars is um is not a small amount of money. So what is it about you know this version of of endeavor? Because there was one that was about you know ten ten odd years before it. What is it that really captured the imagination and the the money of backers? Sure. So, I mean, let's be honest. Endeavor has an incredible pedigree. Um, it, had, it saw a great success when it was originally published, stayed consistently in the top 200 on BGG and was a game that people had clamored for for years. Um, in truth, I owe, you know, a huge debt of gratitude to my partner on that project, Helena Capel from Burnt Island Games, um, who I'll give a little plug right now has Into Deep on Kickstarter. So there you go, Helena. Maybe you can get some... Uh, Aussie support for that game. Um, no, but she came to me and felt that our skills were complementary in how we approach things and asked me to be her partner on that project. And, and therein, you know, it was really just a matter of, I don't want to say just a matter of putting it out there. I mean, the art was overhauled. The graphic design was overhauled. Um, the gameplay was modernized in the sense that some things that um, hindered smooth gameplay in the past were, were, were th those, those rough edges were polished. Um, yeah. to make an even more sublime experience. And then, of course, we add in the exploits, which add in not only historical flavor, but additional mechanics. And again, the game just sings. So we, it, was, it was a perfect confluence of a game that everyone was clamoring for, a tremendous visual overhaul, good timing, of course. Uh, timing is mm -hmm. everything. And, um, and then some additional content because people wanted base endeavor and then they wanted more endeavor and there are a lot of gamers who are also history fans and endeavor taps into a pretty important historical period the age of sale which a lot of nasty things happened but and we don't gloss over those in the game either those are quite specifically addressed but uh but nonetheless uh, that was history and this is uh you know a board game that abstracts that and puts it on your table and a lot of people are are fans of trying to understand that through through board gaming Absolutely. Look, we I am looking forward to the version where Australia features on the map because you know there's there's no there's no Australia on that board. Yeah, no Oceania at all. Yeah, I know. And believe me, uh, given that the creators are both from New Zealand, that is something <laughs> that we have had long discussions about, and and it is something we are working towards. Just um, there's no uh, specific timeline in sight at this point. Um, you know, there are people who want to see Endeavor in space. You know, we've had discussions about including a uh, Oceania board or a sub board, um, you know, Scandinavia is not really represented on the board. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are huge swaths of history and peoples that, um, that are excluded um, from the game as it stands. So yeah, yeah that is a recognized problem. Excellent. Well, we won't call it a problem. We'll call it, you know, a project. An opportunity. Future. That is an excellent yeah, opportunity. Absolutely. Sounds like you're in sales still, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> so look, I mean, you know, looking at these games, and especially, I guess, with Endeavor and Artemis Project, you do put them down on the board, on the table, and you go, wow, there's, there's a lot going on here. Is this too complicated for me? But 
I've really found that, you know, from my experience, they are, they are mechanically really quite simple games to play. And, you know, there, there seems to be a theme that you've, you're going with here that these games are, are accessible, but there's certainly plenty of depth of strategy to, to get that hardcore gamer to, uh, to repeat play and, and give it, you know, several goes, not just one and done. Yeah, accessibility is definitely key, not not just in the um, um, mechanical sense, but also in the colorblind friendliness and, and, you know, our general approach to things. We definitely want games coming out that your strategy can be honed and refined over time, and it, and it isn't just a one-note type of experience. So thanks for recognizing that. No, I, I, yeah, I remember sitting down, especially at Endeavor, and going, what the what? There is a lot going on here. But then... You, you realize that you break it down and you go, okay, I got this. I yeah, may not that, get it very well, but I've got it. That game teaches you how to play it in the first two rounds. And then it just, it, it literally, it opens up metaphorically in the same way that the world opened up in the age of sale. So that, that, that story is kind of mechanically told as well as um, uh, thematically told in that game. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's move to the hottest of the hot stuff. And we are talking about, of course, trying to save animals, which is you know, a very good topic and very pertinent in today's uh, craziness. So endangered, it's, it's not about going out and hunting these wild rhinos and tigers and bears, oh my, it's about actually saving them, which is again, a wonderful, wonderful thematic story to have. Tell us about it. Sure. So taking another left turn and doing something completely different from what I've done previously, um, we decided to produce Endangered, which is a cooperative game about saving endangered species. We ha- launched an initial game that um, was met with Good reception on Kickstarter, um, but not the success I expected given all of the work I had put into marketing that sucker ahead of time. Oh, and I, and I skipped over the two species in the base box are tigers and sea otters. Um, okay. Once the game was out, and it's been out for about a... No, 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 no. More like six months now. It was really well received. Um, every reviewer who got their hands on it... And, and, you know, obviously as a publisher, I'm sending things to reviewers... But these are reviewers who had no skin in the game. They didn't have any reason to give me praise because, yep. you know, you, you reach a lot of people. You reach as many as you can. And um, it just got really enthusiastically embraced. Um, we also had some resonance in some non-gamer publications uh, like Science uh, Journal got a review on it. And, um, and I actually rejiggered my entire schedule to my entire publishing schedule to get new species onto Kickstarter as quickly as I did. To be honest, I didn't know that Endangered would see the light of day in any form or fashion after the struggles of the first campaign. But um, I went with my gut. It felt like Endangered was having a moment. And um, I said, I went to Josh and I went to, um, as graphic designer, and I went to Joe as the designer. And I said, can we make this happen? And they both said, I think we can. And we did. And, um, And boy, I mean, literally, Two and a half times the number of backers, like two and a half times the amount of funding. It was, um, I honestly thought we might hit about the same level as, as Garinto with about an $80,000 campaign, but the end above 140, um, yep. tremendous. That's, that's fantastic. And look, I mean, it's one of those games again, and I've obviously not played it. I've only you know, been able to watch a few reviews myself, but it's, it's just, you know, co-op games makes it family friendly and that's fantastic it's not again just about adults getting around the table it's about adults with kids it's about you know families coming together it's about introducing new gamers into the hobby with this kind of game because it's it's kind of an easy sell the the theme from this game you're just trying to save a particular species this is how we're going to make it work 
right? So yeah, we are really proud of the story we're telling. It's actually that story that got me to sit down at the table with Joe back at that protospiel. I've always been um, an animal lover and the idea to see that realized in a board game and, and, and be the one to, to realize that was super exciting to me. So yeah, yeah. We're, we're really proud of, of, of what it does. And also I would say that, um, you know, it is game first and education second. So we all have that, um, you know, being of similar age, we all know what educational games are. They, they pretty much suck. So yeah. <laughs> we want to make sure we are producing a game first and that the message was simply embedded in, in the actions you were taking. And I think we've accomplished that with, with uh, Flying Colors. That's fantastic. Are you finding, though, that you, you're getting some uh, you know, educational-style stores are, are looking to have this game on the shelves? Just, it's not just your gaming stores. It's more, you know, in Australia, we have National Geographic stores or, you know, science sort of kiddie toy stores where, you know, you, you're not just buying a, a, a character. You're buying, a I don't know, a microscope or a build-your-own-thingamy-bob. Is, is these kind of stores interested or showing interest? A little bit, I would say. So usually on a Kickstarter campaign, there's a retailer pledge level. We also made our pledge level available um, for the retailer pricing to libraries, museums, um, zoos, aquariums, and, um, and things like that. So we definitely saw some resonance there. And I know that um, while we've not broken into the mass market in quite that way, I know that there are select zoos that, that have a few copies in store and things like that. Right. I, think, um, I think Endangered is going to be a slow burn is what it comes down to. And once we have a lot more content for it, because that was, that was the biggest complaint we got about the game. People wanted more content. And the honest truth is this box is, is too full of content. There is, it, it's, um, yeah, it, it, relative to the base game, it was very expensive to produce. And we are giving the people what they have asked for, no doubt. So what animals are we going to save now? Oh my goodness. Um, okay, Cassie, feel free to jump in if I forget. <laughs> so we have polar bears, we have elephants, we have California condors, we have the devil's hole pupfish, and there are two more that I can't think of. Jaguar and tapir. Oh yeah, yep, jaguar and tapir is one scenario, thank you. Mm -hmm. Did you say the, con the, the California the condor? condor we said? There's still one that we're missing. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, go check. Go check out the campaign, and, and you'll see. <laughs> because it is still in in pre-order, isn't it? It is in pre-order. Yes. So the um, final developments being finished up, the final arts being finished up, and um, we'll probably get that to the manufacturer uh, well later this year or very early next. Fantastic. Now, is this the one that Beth Sobel did some art on? Is that right? Yes. So you know that was also one of the interesting struggles with Endangered is we've we've had some artist issues over the course of the game. So um, Beth did an absolutely spectacular, captivating tiger cover for the game um, and a fair amount of the artwork within the game. I will say that um, I'm always excited by how incredibly different Endangered looks on a shelf from every other thing surrounding it. Um, yeah. I think the cover makes you want to pick it up if you have any interest in, in animals and tigers specifically. But round about a third of the way through the project, um, Beth uh, actually did not finish up the art. We moved on to a gentleman uh, by the name of Ben Flores who picked up art duties for the rest of Endangered and then actually provided the art, enough art to get the campaign going for Endangered New Species. And then, and here, here's your scoop of the podcast. This is news Ooh. I have not yet even shared with anyone yet. So um, after the campaign was over, we approached Ben about finishing the art and um, he basically had other commitments. 
And he's like, I can't do this. And I'm like, oh my, okay, what do we do? <laughs> so um, we went on a frantic and fortunately very quick search, found an amazing UK-based young woman by the name of Alex Chapman, who is turning in work that keeps the tone of the game the same, but that is still uniquely her own. So um, very, very excited to uh, have her on board. And she is, yeah, um, people are going to be, if I didn't say it out loud, you wouldn't know is what it comes down yeah, to. Yeah, okay. I oh, know you got to give them their credit because it's, it's an amazing skill they have, isn't it? That's right. Okay. Um, sea turtles. Sea turtles are species number six. So excellent. Um, well done. And, and Cassie covered us from, uh, you know, quietly. So thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. Look, I've not played Endangered. Cassie, is this one that you brought to uh, Electronic Life as well? It is, yes. So I have done the tigers and otters scenarios and they're both free to play on Tabletop Simulator and Tabletopia. Mm -hmm. And I've also done the panda scenario, which is available for purchase on both of those um, platforms. And that's mainly just a small donation. I think we decided it was about $5. Yeah, fantastic. That is. I get a little bit of that too, so that's that's very nice if people want to get it. Yeah, everyone go out and buy pandas so that Cassie gets a royalty off of that, and of course Joe too. I can feed my cats. <laughs> so I mean, you've got some big ticket names like you know tigers and polar bears, but but what's a devil's hole pupfish? So and why do I care about it? The devil's hole pupfish is the rarest fish in the world. I might okay. mess up my geography, but it is um, basically located in one body of water in, I think it's Utah, um, which is okay. one, of the, one, of the, one of our states. I don't know how geography savvy everyone is. And it might not even be Utah. It might be a different, uh, might be a different state. I can't recall. But it's this tiny little blue fish that, um, you know, if that body of water dries up or gets polluted, it's gone. And the truth yep. of the matter is it's actually... Um, including the devil's hole pupfish was actually a passion project inspired by Joe Hopkins, the designer's wife. So she kind of fell head over heels. And I also thought it was kind of funny to have um, the largest living land animal, an elephant, and also have the devil's hole pupfish. So you have like, you know, the megafauna and the microfauna kind of thing going on. Fantastic. Well, look, just a little tip. If you, you want to go for bizarre creatures, there is a little fish called the Tasmanian handfish. Oh. which only lives in Southern Tasmania. And you have, you have to look at it. You have to Google it because okay. it doesn't swim. It uses its fins and it walks along the base, the, the, the sand. So it is, again, very, very specific. It's only in the, the waters around Southern Tasmania. It's also, not surprisingly, very close to, to being endangered. It is not doing particularly well because of invasive species. So if you're looking for more obscure fish, there's a free one for you. Well, you know, it's funny you should say that because there was a lot of Australia, New Zealand talk on the campaign while it was going on and people were throwing out things. And I'll tell you, if I, if I have my druthers, I would love to do a straight on, you know, endangered Oceania box because um, between your guys' wildfires and the particular fish you just mentioned and some species that have gone extinct, you know, there's, there's no right. reason why we can't, you know, realize that in the game as well. I think we could have, you know, a, a down under box, so to speak. That's, that sounds fantastic. But but let's let's see how um, new species does, and um, we also have plans. We would love to do a guest designer box. Sure. And and obviously allow folks to pursue, you know, who who stepped up to that task to pursue their passions. 
we've talked about pangolins and orangutans and because I would love to have a great ape. People have asked mm-hmm. for snakes and sharks. Um, there is unfortunately no end to the animals we can include. The biggest problem is making them each mechanically unique and making yeah. sure that we're providing a distinct experience uh, with each one. Fantastic. Well, we'll leave that challenge up to you, won't we? Thanks. To Joe, <laughs> not to me, to Joe. Yeah, fair enough. You can just be the money man. So look, they're sort of the big games that have, have been out and that are, are coming out. So what else does the future hold for you? You've talked about you know 2021 being the year of Artemis, but what's beyond that? What else? Sure. So another project that dropped into my lap unexpectedly is um, Jonathan Chaffer uh, designed Stroop, which was our second game. And every year, Jonathan does as a gift to his friends um, an 18-card game that he'll usually have produced on the Game Crafter. Well, mm-hmm. I got wind of what he was doing this year, and I just called him up, and I'm like, dude, we got to make this into a legit game. Let's make this happen. And so completely unexpectedly into my schedule dropped a brand-new game called The Kringle Caper, which is an 18-card escape room game uh, that wow. plays one to four in about an hour. The story of the game is that shenanigans are afoot at the North Pole, and it is up to you to figure out what's going on. So it's a tidy little package. You open it up. There are 18 cards. You turn over card number one, and we have a um, not an app. You're not going to download it, but we have a QR code that will take you to a website, or you put in the web address that will provide both hints as well as answers and tell you the next thing to do. So that is available for $12 with free U.S. shipping, but we mm-hmm. also have subsidized shipping for non-U.S. residents and a print-and-play, which you can get for 9 bucks. Because we realize that shipping to Australia, for instance, is probably more than the game. So Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, we wanted to make a print and play available, and that's available immediately. As soon as you purchase the game, uh, as soon as you purchase the print and play, it's yours. Yeah, and you can do that right now. Right so now. I've, I've there got the is website a- up there. It's, it's on the, the Grand Gamers Guild website. You can press buy now, and, and it'll be yours in no time. You just need a printer. Exactly, exactly. So I'm super excited about that because Jonathan's doing 18-card games for years, and I think this is uh, – you know, that's obviously a space that Button Shy has done really well in. They, quite frankly, they excel in it. I'm not looking yeah. to step on their toes, but I um, consider Jonathan a friend and he is a super talented designer. And I think this is a fun way to uh, get his name out more in the world and, and have some fun with a different, um, again, that mission of producing things that are completely different than what I've done before. So just another yeah. way to fill in that hole. Yeah, I, I was looking at that and, and I was also looking at the designers that you've chosen and there's, there's not... There's not a big name designer among them. All of them are either not prolific or sort of relatively, I won't say new, but not, not as well known as certainly, you know, a few other designers that are out there. Is that, has that been a deliberate choice or was it just a sheer virtue of how you found these games? Um, it is definitely uh, by how I found the games. Um, you know, be, it, being a publisher, I'm, I'm a one-man show in a way, in the sense that, I mean, I, I hire and contract with a lot of talented people like Cassie to make things happen that I can't do myself. But at the end of yep. the day... I do everything from writing the checks to sweeping the floors. So, and, it, and with respect to the publishing part, it is my taste that guides things. And, and let's be honest, I'm, I'm really small. So if you have a choice, for instance, to place your, if, you, if you're, I don't know, if you're Eric Lang and you have a choice to put your game with me or with Simon, there's really yeah. not a choice there, you know? <laughs> and unfortunately for me, there's probably 50 other companies you could put in place a Simon there and, you know, dozens of other designers who who have acclaim and, and reputation um and you know i do the best i can 
Um, and my, I, I think our star continues to rise. Um, mm. Now, what I will say, I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag completely on this one, but one of the um, Artemis universe games that we're going to be doing next year is from some designers that you will definitely know. Ooh, okay. So, All right. You piqued so, my interest. So, yeah. So, I mean, Artemis, like I said, next year is intended to be the year of Artemis. I mean, fingers crossed, the best laid plans and, and all. But um, we're going to be looking at doing a game. We're going to be looking at doing one expansion to the Artemis project itself. And then we're going to be looking at three, doing three uniquely um, separate games, uh, unique in mechanics, but still set in the Artemis universe um, to expand and flesh out that story. Wow. Okay. Well, I wait with bated breath. Thank now, you. That's pretty much that's pretty much all the questions that I had for you. But but Cassie or Mark, is there anything else that uh, that I've forgotten to ask you about that you want to talk about? I'm a okay. I mean, you covered all the bases. You got me to tell my story. You allow me to plug some stuff, you know. And, and now, and, and honestly, one of the goals in reaching out to you guys is, you know, I'm trying to expand my brand, and you know, it, it, it's difficult to get to an entire other continent half a world away. So I really appreciate yep. you having me on and, and giving me a voice to talk to what is probably largely um, Australian-based listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Cassie, how about you? Is there anything else that you want to give us a shout out for? Well, speaking of Aussies, I'd like to pimp a couple of campaigns. Yep. So there is currently Lost in Jurassica on Kickstarter by uh, Great Games or Sam Millman. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a going to be from Half Monster Games, who are one of my close, close yeah, friends. Okay. Uh, trust me, I'm a superhero <laughs> who I've been working really, really hard on for the last couple of months. So I'm really excited and I really want to see it do yep. big. Um, and then across the water, but not to America, we've got Mythalix by Sunrise mm -hmm. Games. Um, mm -hmm. And they're currently funding on Kickstarter at the moment. I think they've funded now and working on stretch goals so it'd be really great to see that succeed too and what's you know really exciting about all three projects is I've done the um, implementation for them all so if you go to those campaign pages you'll you'll see me there you go well, that's a bonus and the games that you're um, you know, helping to digitize yeah I'm very 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 interested and excited about lifting other companies along that I work with um, I feel Mark's also very much like that wanting to work you know, with other people to, to lift them up and expand the community. And I feel like it's such a great thing to be doing for each other. That's brilliant. Well, thanks so much, guys, for, for spending your time either in the early morning or the late at night with, uh, with the Dice Men Cometh down here in little old Tasmania. It's been really, really interesting. And um, I always love hearing you know, people's stories about why they got into games, why they got into gaming in the Euro and the hardcore sense. And then Who's crazy enough to actually go and put their own money and turn it into a publishing thing? That's, that just boggles my mind. <laughs> so, Mark, I commend, and I'm also very confused. I'm, uh, I'm also currently paying for my own art to be done on my own little game that I'm making, which I don't know when it will be out, but it's just a cute little memory game called Klepto Kittens. Oh, wonderful. And a little local artist I found on uh, Board Game Revolution, and she's working her way through my list of crazy cat toys and <laughs> making them really adorable. Well, speaking of that, even though you said it might be a while till that comes to life, where can people find you guys on the social media so they can keep up with all this craziness? Starting with you, Cassie, and that interesting game you've got kicking along as we speak. So I'm Cats and Spiel Solutions. So that's two words. Uh, it's German. Basically, it means cat play or cat games. 
um, and solutions is pretty apparent. I'll, I'll probably write it out for you just because the spelling is a bit strange. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And, um, and Mark? Mark? Sure. So um, I'm Grand Gamers Guild everywhere you go. GrandGamersGuild.com. You can search Grand Gamers Guild on uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I have an e-newsletter at the website, which I, I will be officially announcing what next year's slate looks like. Uh, so if you want to be the first person to learn those things, go sign up for our um, newsletter at grandgamersguild.com. And then I'm, I'm, you know, my email address is everywhere. Feel free to shoot me an email directly if uh, you have a specific question or concern about anything that's going on. I try to be pretty on top of communications. Wonderful. And also sometime in the future, Garth and I will be getting our hands on um, physical copies of those two new bad boys you've got coming out of Garinto and Endangered Species. And we will absolutely rip them to shreds and uh, link you <laughs> into every bit of social media because that's that's how we roll on this show. That sounds okay. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, I'll take care of him. I'll take care of Leon, guys. Don't worry about that. But look, yeah, I do want to thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure to, to have you both on the show and um, just give you the, you know, give us the backstory about, you know, everything uh, Grand Gamers Guild and what the future holds. So I'm very excited about those Artemis um, project games that are coming out because, yeah, I was I was really, really pleasantly surprised with the gameplay in that one. And obviously, as you say, Endeavour is such a well-known and um, mechanically simple but very complex game. I, I love it. And, and obviously, yeah, Garinto, I think there's there's a big rise in these abstract games. You look at Santorini, you look at Azul, and, and now hopefully, obviously, Garinto getting up there in the mix. I think we're seeing the these beautiful abstract games that are getting to um, getting to people who maybe have sort of poo-pooed abstract games a little bit in the past. So I, I think that's going to be great for the hobby. Yeah, I think presentation matters. And um, games like Santorini and Azul, as you've mentioned, have definitely elevated the um, visibility of those games. Yeah, for sure. So on that note, we are going to say thank you very much to, to Mark and Cassie. We are going to leave you two alone as Leon and I then go and do a little bit of a review of a game that, well, we'll talk about it when we do the review, I think, Leon, whether or not it should exist or not. So yes. Mark and Cassie, look, thanks so much. Um, thanks for shouting out all your social medias. I'm sure all our listeners can go and follow and hashtag and do all those things. And obviously... For listeners, please make sure that if you are interested in endangered and new species that you go because you can pre-order it, even though the Kickstarter's over. So, Leon, yes. we're going to let these two lovely people go and enjoy mm. their breakfast or their dinner. And yes. uh, then we're going to go and talk about Cosmic Encounter Duel and yes, uh, turning amazingly crazy one of my best games ever yeah. into a little two-player version. And we'll see whether or not that actually should exist, hey? Not a worry. We can certainly do that. And between you and me, since they've just gone and obviously we'll never listen to this again, that print and play said the crinkle caper, the 18 card um, escape room. To be perfectly honest, print and play has never been my cup of tea. That's about the best pitch and most interesting print and play I think I've ever heard of. And I legitimately am considering giving somebody money <laughs> and actually getting that. So who knows? I might do that and I might talk about that later. But again, we might do that and then rip it to shreds and then just link them onto it because <laughs> that's fun to do. But as you said, we'll be back in a moment to talk about Cosmic Encounter Jewel. But why? Hi, this is Ella from Ella Loves Board Games. And my favorite podcast is The Dice Men Cometh. All right. So there you go. This is The Dice Men Cometh. We are coming live to you from our pre-recorded bedrooms and games room. But one of the things that uh, we didn't mention with Cassie and Mark 
is that there's actually the Melbourne International Games Week that is currently happening right now. It was from the 3rd of October, which is a couple of days ago, to the 11th of October. It is connecting gamers, technology and culture because there's influencers from Australia and around the world, businesses and industry for all different types of games. It is Asia Pacific's largest digital games celebration and it is happening right now. So if you are interested, make sure you just go and type in Melbourne International Games Week into your internet browser of choice. Have a look because Board Games is featuring at the, uh, at the table section of this. So there, as Cassie mentioned, well, she tried to anyway. She'll be running a few digital versions of online games there. And that's something that you should really be checking out, especially because our podcast is going to be live and out while that convention is still going on. So there you go. That is the Melbourne International Games Week. Now, Leon, yes. we are going to talk about one of my favourite games, if not my favourite game ever, Cosmic yep. Encounter. No, we're not at all. We're going <laughs> to be talking kind of about it, kind of, because... Did you know, Garth, and I'm sure you did, that the Cosmic Citizenship Council has announced that it will allow two new alien species to join its ranks. But, silly old sods, they forgot to make two copies of the filing form, which means that only one species can join. Now, the two candidates must battle for control of planets to determine who deserves the right to become a certified civilization. Well, there you go, Leon. That sounds... Look, it's funny. I like the premise for this. You know, it's in keeping with the theme of Cosmic Encounter. It's kind of very Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Is you're trying to become a civilization, but someone's just put the paperwork in the wrong miscellaneous filing cabinet. Yes, indeed. So what we are talking about is Cosmic Encounter Jewel. And as Garth said, Cosmic Encounter is a game that has been around for, what, 30 years now by this yeah. point? Very close to. Um, and it is a game that is close to nearly every gamer's heart, and especially the Dice Men, is collectively in the Dice Men's top 10 of all time, which is something we might actually do sometimes, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. It's not a bad idea. Put that in the bank Garth, make a note yep. of that. Yes, um, but yeah, so Cosmic Encounter Jewel is the two-player version of Cosmic Encounter because that's the new thing. I think that's the new thing of, of 2020 and maybe 2019 is to make two-player Jewel versions of these bigger, you know, kind of elaborate IPs that are out there. Yeah. So Cosmic Encounter Jewel. So yeah, so it's a competitive standalone two-player game set in that universe where very similar to Cosmic Encounter, you're fighting over different uh, planets and you're trying to become, you know, the, the big the big alien that's in charge of all of it. Yeah, absolutely. And look, it's one of those things where it's a small box because it is just that little two-player version. It doesn't take up nearly as much space as, as Cosmic Encounter, let alone Cosmic Encounter with all the amazing expansions. Mm -hmm. But geez, you know, it's a hard sell. And I, look, I bought the copy. I've got my game and I've played it. Yeah. And I bought it really for the novelty factor of going, how the hell... Is Cosmic Encounter Duel going to work when Cosmic Encounter is all about chaotic madness of having five to eight players around the table all wailing on each other, making breaking alliances and going, ah, how are you going to yeah. capture that in a two-player version? So how do you capture that in a two-player version, Leon? Yes, well, as I've mentioned before, that when I play board games, I play them for um, the experiences and for the people involved. That's why I find it a bit harder to play games online compared to some others, because I'm not necessarily about the mechanics, I'm about the people. And Cosmic Encounter is one of those games. It's in there with the top when it comes to, it's about the people. You're just giving people um, some rules 
in a crazy space environment to have fun and chaos, as you said, with a few other people. So that is one of those things that when you first hear about it, you go, of all the games to make a two-player version of, why this? But as you said, they've done it, and how does it work? So the way that it works is that there's various different mechanics that they use to kind of try and replicate the experience of having those five or six type of people around the table. Because even though Cosmic Encounter, the base game of Cosmic Encounter, I can't even remember now because everyone has expansions for Cosmic Encounter. No one just buys the base game and leaves it at that. Absolutely. I think the original version maybe only plays up to five, which is utterly ridiculous because five (laughs) is the absolute minimum for Cosmic Encounter. You can play four, but you never would. Uh, Six-player Cosmic Encounter is where it's at. You can play more if you want, which is also not that bad, but six-player Cosmic Encounter is pretty much the only number as far as where concerned. (laughs) But as you said, this is a two-player game, so what are you going to do? So it's very similar in that you're going to be fighting over planets, but instead of having those other people around the table, you're going to be having these cards which represent different kind of alien races that you can vie over. There's three per game that you can... Um, try and control back and forth between you and the other player and they kind of represent what would be the other people at the table that's right So they've tried their hardest to replicate it how well do you think that actually kind of worked though Garth? that's a really good question leon and, and the answer is it didn't no <laughs> yeah it, it really didn't work i mean these envoys are interesting and there's there's a sizable yeah. deck of them and that's yeah. great but i think the issue that I've got is that, you know, Cosmic Encounter is all about stupid, crazy combinations that sometimes just completely break the game. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes you scratch your head and go, what the what? Mm. And the envoys so far that I've seen just don't do that. They, they kind of just make sense. And having something make sense in a Cosmic Encounter game shouldn't be there. It, it no. just... You want crazy and zany, and they they don't offer that for me. That being said, the aliens themselves, they've got awesome art on them, and they've also, they are crazy, got crazy names, crazy pictures, and some of them do have crazy abilities. So they have tried their hardest to represent the essence of Cosmic Encounter, which I did think they do capture in the look of it anyway. You can walk past this and go, that's Cosmic Encounter, but not the one I know of. So they've caught the essence of it. And as you said, it is kind of about the somewhat randomness and chaoticness of Cosmic Encounter. They had come up with a way that is the one thing, not the one thing that's positive, because there are some positives before we do slag it off, which we're gonna, <laughs> again, spoilers. But yep. there's they have these three decks that at the start of each round of this game, you're going to be drawing from. And I actually think that this mechanic that they have is my favorite mechanic that they have in this game. because The way it's going to work is that these three different decks are broke up into discovery cards, event cards, and refresh cards. So what it's going to be is that when you start the game, you'll flip over one of them. I believe it's a discovery card always starts. And the discovery cards are the cards that are going to say, there's a new planet in the system and you guys are going to duel over it, which is the crux of the game. But there's also the event cards, which are random events that come up that you have to deal with. And then there's the refresh cards where you do things like get ships back or get tokens back or things of that nature. But not all of these are going to happen on every turn because when you flip over a card, say a discovery card, there's going to be a symbol down the bottom and it's going to tell you that next round you're going to flip an event card or a refresh card. So you know kind of what card is coming up 
but you don't know you don't, if it's an event card you don't know what events it's going to be and if it's a refresh card you don't know exactly what you're going to be refreshing so i think that is a great little mechanic that gives you that kind of randomness back in that you can plan a little bit ahead because you know roughly what's coming but you don't necessarily know, you know, I really need two or three ships to win this, but there's not a refresh card coming for several rounds. And then when it does come up, there might not be get ships back in there. So that is one mechanic in this that I was really impressed with that helps add to the style of what Cosmic Encounter is. Oh, look, I totally agree. When I was reading the rules on that, I was going, that's cool. My concern was, is that, you know, is it going to mean that every game plays out the same way? You're always going to have flip over the discovery. It's always going to lead to an event. That's always going to lead to a refresh and let to back to a discovery, but it doesn't do that. It is completely random. And in fact, some of the cards, I think the symbol down the bottom is two or three symbols. So you, you can then choose what the next card is going to be in, in some respects, which is really handy. It yep. does, as you say, give you a little bit of foresight into what the next round is going to look like, which is yep. cool because Ship management is really a big part of this game because, again, you've got 20 of the ships on one side and 20 of the ships on the other side. You've always got to have some ships on the planets that you've discovered to try and make sure you retain ownership of them. Mm -hmm. So you've really got to make sure that you're trying to, to win, ideally, or yeah. lose duels occasionally with um, the right number of ships being used because that, I found, can be really quite tricky. Yeah. So as we said, this game is called Cosmic Encounter Duel. So how do duels actually work? Well, they are very similar to anyone who's played the base game of Cosmic Encounter. And anyone who's listening to us now that goes, what do they keep talking about this game that if they, I don't know about? Well, go onto YouTube and look at how amazing it is and then buy it and play it and go, yep, those boys were right. But the way the duels work in this game are very similar to that base game in that you're going to be sending out some, some ships and you're going to have this little dial that you're going to, that I believe it's zero to four, how many ships yep. you're going to be sending. So you'll do that between um, the two different people and then you'll put it down to see how many ships get sent out. So it's a kind of, as normally in the base game, you'd go, I'm sending this much and they go, I'm sending this much. It's a bit more secretive, which is clever. You're then going to play these little uh, tactics tokens, which uh, big fans are falling over constantly. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And they just add a little extra bit. And those are things like, you know, destroy three ships or protect three ships. They're pretty simple or refresh these tokens. So you get some of them back. But the other tokens that people have left uh, are open knowledge. So you know, well, they can't send four ships because they've used that four ship. Um, well, they can't, sorry, they can't defend four ships because they've used that tactics token. So again, some information you know, some that you don't, which is very handy for a game like this to kind of add to the chaos. Yeah. And then once you do that, you're going to be playing cards from your hand, very similar to normal Cosmic Encounter. They're going to have a number depicted on it, which is going to be your attack strength, your defense strength, your negotiation, special cards, that kind of jazz. You each play them and then see who comes out on top to, to win the planet. And it's the first person to win three out of the five planets that, that comes away with the win. So it is very much in the sense that if somebody said design a two-player version of Cosmic Encounter, they probably have done that nearly 10 on 10 perfect. This is as good as you possibly could make one of the best multiplayer games in board gaming history into a two-player game. But it's one of the best multiplayer games ever in yeah. a two-player game. <laughs> yeah, should a two-player version of this game exist? Yeah. And, and I'm really... Like, I, I don't sell many games. I Like, I keep games going, I might play it down the track. Whereas, Leon, you take a completely different attitude, which is, yeah. I'm not going to play this game again because I've got game XYZ that I'm going to play instead, so I'll sell. Mm -hmm. But this is a game that I've played and I went, 
why would I play this over yeah. Seven Wonders Duel? Now, Seven yeah. Wonders, again, is a great multiplayer game. Seven Wonders is a classic in our hobby in that multiple drafting game where Seven Wonders Duel, in my opinion, is a fantastic two-player implementation of that mechanic. It really does it well. And the Whereas, reason that does kind of work is because Seven Wonders, even though you can play it with, you know, five, six, seven, eight people, is that most of that game is doing stuff with the people right next to you. So correct. you could argue that Seven Wonders is a two or three player game. You just can't happen to play with much larger thing. Whereas Cosmic Encounter, the beauty of that game is no matter what is happening, no matter whose turn it is, no matter what's going on, on a table of five, six, seven, eight people, you're always involved. It is as multiplayer as multiplayer as possible. So the reason why Seven Wonders Duel works is because they didn't have to do that much to make it the way that they did it, and they did it really well. Yeah, I, I agree. So look, I'm willing to give this a couple more plays just so that I see more aliens and more envoys, which are, are interesting, but I'm yet to see them actually add a hugely positive element to the game. But um, man, unless this game, unless something really clicks and there's clearly something that we are, are all missing, it's just not good enough. No, that is true. But that being said, as I've now mentioned probably 30 times, and I might even edit out 40 of the other ones that I've said, we are comparing this to one of our favorite big games of all time. If you did not do that, if you had not played Cosmic Encounter, the big game, this game just by itself, just a two-player game, it's a completely fine two-player game. Yeah. The thing is that we have played that big game and we can't kick it out of our head that you kind of go, you have to compare the two. You flat out have to do it. Well, the name is on the box. You know, it's comparing itself to its, to its big brother, this, this behemoth in gaming. Yeah. And you just, you, you don't have the moments that you have in Cosmic Encounter where you think you're going to win the planet. You think it's all going to happen. It's all coming together. Everyone said that they're going to do this and, they, and then it's bang and you are screwed. Yeah. And your immediate victory turns into an immediate defeat and you just have to have your tail between your legs and you go, I didn't see that coming. Whereas with this dual version, there's none of those massive moments for me. There's, yes, I'm playing that card and that card and now my number is bigger than your number and now you play a reinforcement card, which means your number is bigger than my number and then I play that another one. And it's yeah. a slow burn, potentially, of who's going to win this game. And I've been amazed. And from a mechanic point of view, it makes sense. But so many of the games I've played, it's been tight. Every single planet. And again, that's fine from a mechanical point of view but it's not in the spirit of Cosmic Encounter, which is you can yeah. have your best laid plans and they all just get completely destroyed. Yeah. doesn't happen so, here. No. So that's the thing. At the end of the day, our kind of review or thoughts of this is that if you like two-player games and play a lot of two-player games, it's worth a look. I'm not necessarily saying go out and buy it, but if you know somebody that's got a copy, it's worth a play. And I'm sure online there's probably a way that you can play it as well. It's worth a play for, if you're a big fan of two-player games. However... If you go, I want to buy this game merely because I want the essence of Cosmic Encounter and I can't always get five or six people around a table, especially, you know, the state of the world at the moment. That is physically not possible for three quarters of the world, unfortunately. In Australia, we're a little bit more lucky at the moment. Um, but does it capture that spirit of that game in a two-player game? And the simple answer is no, even though the mechanics are perfect for it, because I don't think it's possible to capture the essence of that mayhem in a two-player game. I completely agree. Absolutely. Yep. So I, I really wanted to love this game because of 
the love I have for Cosmic Encounter. And that's why we are so passionate about this, getting this little conversation out there because it's not that game. It's not Cosmic Encounter. It's just not. It is sadly not that game. And what game out there is, we don't know. Maybe we could be proven wrong. We're more than happy to. Maybe this is one of those cases where one expansion comes out that becomes an essential expansion that changes this game completely and we eat our words. I wish that happens. So Absolutely. Look, I mean, it's been out for a while now, but on BGG, it's ranked 3,568. So it's really not set the world on fire comparing it to Cosmic Encounter, which is 140 overall and has has been higher in past. Indeed. Right. So that was our thoughts on Cosmic Encounter, Jewel. Give it a crack if you want, but if not, at the end of the day, yeah, just wait till you can get those people around the table and have all the fun of that amazing game. So we are done for yet another fortnight. That is episode 315 in the books and sorted. We had a lovely chat with the two friends earlier that we've made that have some awesome games coming out soon and yeah fun time had by all absolutely yeah thanks to mark and cassie for spending their time with us we're really looking forward to having a a game of gorinto and endangered when we get our hands on those copies but Mm -hmm. yes if you are interested me please make sure you follow us on all the socials and we are basically at dice men cometh on all the things we also haven't said thanks to lfg but i better say thank you lfg for your continuing support that's amazing, as always, during these crazy times. And I am very happy that they have started being able to get some um, in-store gaming events happening uh, at their stores in Canberra. And we might have a little bit of news from LFG coming up in future episodes that I'm not allowed to talk about just yet. But needless to say, if things keep getting better in Australia, yeah, we may be able to play games with more people soon. That could be a thing. Let's just sprinkle those breadcrumbs for the time being. But don't follow them. You've got a sandwich at home. So speaking of that, since it is rather early in the morning, I'm going to go eat a sandwich. It's going to be a toasted one that's going to be lovely. <laughs> and, and we will see you all in about a fortnight's time. So from me and Garth here at the Dice Men Cometh, we are saying toura again. So everyone out there, play games, but stay safe. 100% well said, Leon. We will speak to you soon. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to another episode of The Dice Men Cometh, proudly brought to you by LFG Australia. Be sure to check out lfg-oz.com.au for all the details of their flagship events, LFG Sydney and LFG Essen Unplugged, as well as their online and physical retail store. You can find us at dicemencometh.com or on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And don't forget, you can support us on Patreon too. Thanks for listening.